0: a policy, research, and data specialist for Africa at Borderlands Center. Dr. Murray. welcome to Kenya's Biggest Conversation.
1: Thank you very much. Happy to be here today.
0: Yes, and Happy New Year. You know, we are saying Happy New Year between the 1st of January until...
1: June 17th.
0: Why 17th?
2: Because it just sounds nice. No,
0: until the end of the financial year. It's
3: around there now, <laughs> June seventh. Uh-huh. End of June. But, but, but why are you people limiting the year? The we'll year the ends, end. ends on the 31st of December. <laughs> That's when the year ends. Mm. Yes. Happy New Year until... It is a new year. Until, until you say Happy New Year of, to the New Year. Precisely. York. So, expand your vision,
0: my man. All right. Wow. Yes. Happy New Year, Dr. Terry. <laughs> happy New Year,
1: everyone.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Let's start with just understanding the Borderlands Center. What is it and what does it do?
1: Thank you, Eric. Um, The Africa Buland Center is a research center for the United Nations Development Programme uh, known as the UNDP and its aim is to support the United Nations Development Programme to research, to collect data and information, to be able to inform development programming and policy in the Africa Buland So generally, the center is continental, it's African-wide, and we provide support to the UNDP country offices, working with governments, the African Union, and other entities uh, working on cross-border programming, or majorly what is called the borderlands. So we basically uh, work through uh, collaborative partnership approaches to be able to look at issues such as what we are going to discuss today on the agro-pastoralists and work together with these partners Mm. uh, to ensure that uh, these interventions are evidence based Mm.
0: So what are borderlands? Uh, Is it any country that has a border? (laughs) 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 Good
1: question. Um, uh, One of the issues that we discovered in our initial mapping and and looking at uh, what are these borderlands, is actually um, the areas that are within uh, borders. Either it could be a border between two countries or three countries, and majorly we focus on communities. In most instances, these communities have been left behind in programming, in development planning. And for example, if we look at uh, some of the areas that were touched on the current research that we're going to talk about, um, in Kenya, we, we looked at the West Pokot which is the county between um, Kenya and Uganda, and on the other side, Marsabit County, which is the county, uh, bordering Kenya and Ethiopia, mm. and others in the West uh, Africa, Mali, Nigeria, uh, Burkina Faso, and the rest. You realize that these communities and a lot of planning happens in the center or in the capitals. And you therefore realize all throughout, if you look at the development history, urban planning or regional planning, it happens within the capitals. So the borderlands communities are those communities are either largely touched by either cross-border programming. Mm. If there is no cross-border programming, then they are left behind. So that's the focus that we look at these communities in the far-flung areas and in this region, uh, especially like for Kenya and the two counties that I've mentioned, mm. they actually fall within the arid, the arid and, and semi-arid areas.
3: That research, if you, I mean, from what you're saying, Datari it sounds like something that has been not only much needed, but it provides that bridge, that gap, uh, it provides a bridge that brings closer this development gap that has existed perhaps in our country for the longest time. But then, then came devolution. Would you say that with the devolution, there have been any changes that one can speak of with regards to issues uh, of development because your research would indicate with clarity just how behind some of these areas had been left. But now we have devolution, which means these very counties have money.
1: Thank you. Yes. With the devolution, um, in other aspects called uh, decentralization, Mm. I think um, for one of the countries that we looked at is Kenya. It was moving in the right direction, and it is still moving in the the right direction. And what is important and what the research is bringing in is bridging this gap so that we are able to look at those who are left behind, starting with the farthest first. So we are saying in the uh, construction or, for instance, in the devolution using the country Kenya, you will find that it is very, very important to actually look at what are these challenges in these far-flanked areas or far-flanked counties. And one of the issues we are realizing that, for instance, the two counties that I've given an example, because they are far-flanked, they are in semi-arid, but they are also border counties so therefore that means it requires not only the county regional devolution perspective but also the cross-border perspective because for instance if something is happening in west pokot it of course either flows out to the next which is kabong or Murote in Uganda, or the other way around. Mm. So what we are saying, yes, devolution within the country context, but also looked across, what is it that we can do? And one of the issues that we are proposing, and that came from these communities, because if you look at the report, it's promise and peril, resilience and voices. So we actually collected voices from how they see their lives, how they've become resilient, and how they want solution to be done. And they are saying, for instance, if we want to improve the lives of agro-pastoralists, support us to do more cross-border trade. We farm, we have farm inputs. We have livestock, we want to add value and sell. So we are therefore saying with this devolution within the country, yes, but also allow us to be able to trade what we have, to be able to add value, and therefore build our resilience.
0: Mm. So the report is called the Africa Borderland Report. Talking about just these two communities that we can relate with, community in Westpocot, community in Marsabit. Yes. Agro-pastoralists. Yes. Which means that they are pastoralists, they are keeping livestock, and they are also farming. Yes. So this is who these communities are. Yes. What have you found as the main challenges that they face, but also start with the main opportunities that you see here? And, you know, what you can say, these are success stories from what they've gone through promise and resilience and voices no promise and peril resilience and voices
1: thank you i think erica i'll start with the opportunities one um from our own mapping it's an estimated that over 270 million people live in these borderlands including these two that we've mentioned t- 270 million
0: people in Africa, Africa. Africa. yes,
1: including these um, two two areas and even uh, the eight countries that we recite about. Apart from them being faced by the challenges of drought, lack of water and the climate related, these communities have their own way of the resilience. Mm. They have ways of adapting. One of the issues they are saying that the natural resources that is available to be shared is an opportunity but because of the change of the climate it's dwindling one thing pasture and water so therefore they have to cross and when they cross if they are livestock they are either trampling on crops and there is conflict Mm -hmm. or they all running to this hardly found resource which is pasture and water therefore conflict but they are saying the little we have the indigenous knowledge that we have, if we can be helped to build on this, we can thrive. And one of the propositions we are actually um, proposing from the UNDP Africa Borderlands Centre is what we call the area-based portfolio approach. So that in this area-based portfolio approach, you take what is available there. You take the opportunity for instance, is it water? Is it irrigation so that they can be able to farm and they can be able to tender their livestock in a manner that is commensurate with good neighborliness mm-hmm. and bringing the issue of social cohesion? And we are also saying to do this, since already they have a lot of resources, is it finances? So who are we going to partner with so that this area-based portfolio approach looking at the vertical and the horizontal Mm. and the horizontal actually is the neighborliness within the county and across the border (coughs) and to be able to help them ensure that this happens so we are therefore saying looking at this area based portfolio approach Mm. resource mobilizing with private sector and and in uh, make sure that we attract finances here Mm. and investment we are therefore saying these people can be able to adopt another change of life and build their resilience. So we are there for saying also issues of social cohesion, mm. issues of peace building would be very, very crucial levers to this. Okay.
2: To whom do these people belong? And I think that's also probably a crucial thing when we're talking about then who protects them and then under whose ambit then do they fall when it comes to rights? So, somebody who lives along the borderlands, who claims them and then who takes care of them? Or rather, from whom do they demand as nations?
1: From whom do they demand? Thank you. Um, From who do they demand accountability? Mm -hmm. Within the context of a government, for instance, Kenya, it has its own way of managing national government, And the county government. Mm -hmm. So therefore, this uh, in West Pokot, the communities that were interviewed, actually they look up to, at the local level, the county government of West Mm Pokot. But also you will find that the national government has a responsibility to provide the national duties and accountability mechanism. So that is what they look up to. But also they are saying... If you look at the report, they've also gotten service delivery from non-governmental organizations, from faith-based and others. Mm. So as communities, they look at government, they look at county government, but they also look at other partners and other friends, including the United Nations and other non-governmental organizations that have provided support. So we are therefore saying, and going back to the aim of this research, we called it the collaborative Action research for development mm. my friends in the office lab and sometimes I call it we cared mm. Collaborative action research for development Why because all the <coughs> stakeholders we are going to work together and that's why we are here today to share this message And to invite all partners to look at the recommendations from the report If you can work with the United Nations if you can work with the government the national government or the county government or the regional government for instance even the IGAD the African Union, the East African community. If you can pick one thing and say colleagues, partners, these communities have been left behind. I want to work with you to ensure Mm. that we are collaborating and we are filling this space and taking the opportunity because the communities gave us their story. They've spoken to us. And we are actually going to work together with them and also coalesce. They gave us a list of the people they are working in different regions of Africa to be able to craft this area-based portfolio approaches mm-hmm. and therefore help them continue improving their resilience and adaptability.
0: You know, I see one big problem. Yes, Eric. And this is the most important stakeholder or partner. Yes. Government. Yes. These are areas that have been marginalized by government Either by direct policy or by indirect policy, okay. And even today, as we speak, the way you're saying, they are facing these challenges. These are counties that also, like recently, they are currently they're facing drought. Recently, they had locusts and all this. But the way the government responds to their issues tells you that the government does not really put in as much effort as it ought to be putting. For IGA to come in, for the UN to come in, for other development partners um, to come in, for even faith-based organizations and local seas, civil society organizations to participate, the government needs to take the lead. So the government is a critical stakeholder here, and yet the government has had ministries that deal with regional development since Kibaki days. Even today, the William Ruto administration has a ministry that is dealing with East African and regional development but you don't feel the presence of national government spearheading all these activities that are needed. What does the the report recommend, or what do you see as the best way to make the government act and treat these people as their people?
1: Thank you, Eric. I think one of the recommendations from the report, and and basically lifting the voices from the, um, the communities, They appreciate that there are some services that have been delivered by different governments across Africa, and they would want to see more. And we want to appreciate, especially uh, for this report, we do appreciate the support from the government of Kenya, because the design and the launching of the report, we've seen their goodwill and commitment. And actually, we want to acknowledge that this report was launched together with the representation of government from the ministry of east african community and arid and semi-arid lands as i mentioned the two counties found within that realm so we're hoping to work together with them um in this uh, so that we can be able and see actually uh, whether we could start here in uh, West Pokot uh, in the Kenya-Uganda border with our colleagues in the UNDP country office across the border and see this what we call the area-based portfolio approach if it can bring um, some of um, the benefits that we are seeing. So we're working together. The Africa Buller Center is based, though continental, it's based here in Nairobi and we are hosted (coughs) here and we are happy to appreciate the collegial support that we have already received from the government of Kenya and working towards with us and even during the launch of the report. And in terms of the implementation, we're actually going to pick the different recommendations for the different actors and have a whole long way implementation plan and also working together with other development partners and willing friends to be able to support these countries to do the implementation and respond to what the communities look at challenges because already there are opportunities hmm. there are private sector their development partners who are already in these regions including non-governmental organization
0: and the faith-based maybe it's for a lack of communication sensitization and therefore awareness that I'm going to ask this question. Yes, of course, there is the Ministry of EAC and ASL, right? Involved in this at policy level. Uh, in terms of budgetary allocations you know, from national government, in terms of budgetary allocations and, and uh, policy formulation and implementation at county, do we actually see movement? Because I get a sense that, yes, government is very good at talking, and you'll find there are very serious people who are have immense knowledge seated in the government at the ministry of ourselves they know this they'd work with you and collaboratively, we we'll come up with a report like this and launch it and say you know there's goodwill but unless there's that political goodwill which means allocate money so that then you can see meaningful movement then you, uh, eric will just be sitting here and thinking okay yeah uh, this is one of those other things that the government talks about all the time What is it that needs to happen so that movement can actually happen beyond talking, beyond meetings, seminars, beyond report formulation, beyond policy, actual implementation?
1: Thank you, Eric. I think uh, one of the things I mentioned um, is that um, uh, this is action research and uh, the opportunity for us to be able to support uh, different um, governments in in Africa because Africa Bulland Center is is continental and uh, uh, Kenya uh, is one of the countries that we did the research. So we're going to work uh, with the UNDP, Kenya Country Office, And um, they have a devolution program, and they have supported um, uh, the government of Kenya in all uh, this, including how to do their budgeting. So for us, we appreciate that there is goodwill, there is an opportunity, and our other uh, UN um, counterparts uh, will be able to to work with us to be able to ensure uh, that we support um, each partner, including uh, the governments, to be able to, to implement
0: that. Okay, let's yeah. take a break and then we continue the conversation. City has like 17 questions, he's lined up. Uh, so let him take a break. This is the Situation Room, the only way to start your day. Conversation continues with Dr. Lily Murray, who is a policy research and data specialist at the Africa Borderlands Center. She's here to talk to us about a report they've recently released called the Africa Borderlands Report. And uh, City, mm. you've taken the sip of a Minute Maid. Relaxed, revitalized, energized. <laughs> you know, take um, your your worries away.
3: It, it isn't so much my worries or concerns. <clears throat> it is what the good doctor has mentioned mm. has piqued my interrogative capacities. I'm thinking, you know, this is a good thing that is being done here. And then you came in and started talking about the government involvement. Now that one got my mind racing mm. because if I look at some of the areas that have been mentioned, we're talking about let's say talk about Turkana, for instance. I'm gonna focus on Turkana. Mm. Several things have happened in that particular county that are significant. Mm. One, we've talked of oil oil exploration, but the one which appeared viable until the company that was involved were told run out of money was in Turkana. Mm. That same Turkana at the Lake Turkana has a serious Wind power project. That same, same Turkana is the same place in a place called Lottikipi They found 250, this was in 2013, cubic, uh, 250 billion, okay, Mm. cubic meters of water in an aquifer. But we're told this one, salinity too high.
0: Uh, extracting it too expensive
3: yeah too expensive and also you know this matter of uh, um, how it can be viable and yet we're told that this is the sort of water that could serve this country for the next 70 years according to the experts not according to me Mm. so I'm thinking to myself if I look at the technology and the science about uh, what we refer to as desalination Mm. it's really advanced some are even solar powered now if you've been to Turkana The one thing you'll realize, they do not have a shortage of solar, as in sun. So, if you're talking about power that is required for this desalination to take place, go to the coast and look at the water that most of the establishments have. It's sweet water, but it doesn't start off as sweet. It's been desalinated. So, Eric, your point about government involvement. If this is the amount of water that we have, and we're talking about Turkana. You know Turkana borders Samburu? Forget the countries. It borders Southern Sudan and Uganda. Let's leave that aside. Let's come back to Kenya. It borders Pokot. It borders Samburu. It borders Marsabet. Mm. Now, we're talking about countries where the issues that have been mentioned, you will find in abundance in these counties. Now, Mm. here's one simple resource that could change everything that we're talking about if you're talking about just the quantity that's available. Now, when someone talks of viability and talking about having the interest in actually changing the lives of people. We talk about building pipelines from Lamu and taking it to Uganda. Now, surely, are you telling me that the lives of the individuals in these counties that border Marsabet, and given the people of, not Marsabet, of Turkana, and Turkana itself, should not every effort that can possibly be made, I am not convinced when I read the argument that the Ministry of Water in this, in this it was, I'm talking about an article that appeared in uh, the business daily in February 2022 last year, I'm not that argument doesn't convince me. I, I've seen our government spending money on some spurious projects that never even take off. and <laughs> you, uh, the money's disappeared, there's no project. And yet you're being told that it's too expensive. Mm. What do they mean when they say it's not economical, economically viable? Yeah, this one natural resource, would change this conversation that we're having the wood doctor completely mm. this one resource ask her the question dr do you take government ministries on when it comes to what they're able to do and what they don't actually do given their ability
1: thank you um uh, for that question um i think i will i will respond by just going back to the mandate of the united development program and to appreciate that uh, we work with governments and we work uh, to support them notwithstanding that they have the responsibility of working to support their people and ensuring that their policies and legislations that help uh, to improve the lives of their people so i think uh, for us um, since there is an opportunity to provide and to work with them on development solutions in these areas where they were sampled uh, by the research of course we couldn't do the whole of africa we could actually even do the whole of borderlands is just where the research were focused but we are appreciating that their lessons learned from other countries that can be borrowed and with these spaces of collaboration therefore we can work to support them when they need help and when they ask. So I want to to say that the example you've given for for Turkana County and the natural resources that are available, I think is another opportunity to appreciate that in these uh, borderlands areas, in these areas that are left behind, they are far-flanked, their resources is a matter of injecting new innovation, new technology and see how these communities benefit. Yeah
2: how have these communities survived over time if you look at if you look at the footprint of looking at the african continent you know looking at kenya and the border communities in kenya looking at west africa border communities of nigeria mali etc yeah. how do they survive because i feel I, I feel as though there's a sense of being lost as these communities, not really sure where they belong. They're those that border within the country and then those that border internationally. I think of the Hausa people of Nigeria. I think of the Hausa people of Mali. Yeah. I think of the Hausa people of Niger. Niger. yeah. So how have they survived before the intervention of organizations who then I hope, I'm assuming, push governments to then operate in a certain manner? What has the survival mechanism been?
1: Historically, thank you. Um, Historically, um, these communities, in the first place, they don't know physical borders Mm. because one of the things that they told us um, that have really helped them to live is family
2: Mm.
1: and trade. And because family, as you've mentioned the Hausa in that um, uh, nigeria Niger, and Mali uh, triangle, Mm -hmm. people have intermarried. Mm -hmm. People still um, move either because of weddings or other ceremonies. So that anchor, one of the things they said is family. The other thing that they said is their anchor is this being able to cross the border for family or to trade. Mm. And also, it cautions them with this drought and this climate-impactive um, shocks. They fall back to the families across the border. And if you look at the report, I think it was over 60% that they said they supported. So that's their base. That's The, the fallback is family and being able to cross uh, to the border either for this family-related or trade. So they are there for saying, this is our way of life. If we have one aspect as a farmer, mm-hmm. if I'm a livestock herder, if I can be supported to ensure that whatever the asset be that I have, I can be able to rebuild it, especially for those who have been affected by this long, prolonged droughts, then we are saying we can also be able to help those who are across the border. Mm-hmm. So they are saying instead of restricting us, we are not able to move, please enable. And this comes, um, the issue of, of governments, including the regional governments, for that region, mm-hmm. the ECOWAS should mm-hmm. be able to help. For this other region, it could be the EAC and EGAD mm. to be able to facilitate and enable, because as human beings, you know, if you restrict, then they will find mm ways of surviving Mm -hmm. and and we have seen and and from the research is that there is a promise because a, a lot of the youth in that area is promising and they are the ones who will be able to be resilient but if there is that gap then you will find others getting into criminality Either banditry or uh, what uh, they call cattle rustling in some of these areas. Mm-hmm. So they are there for saying, appreciating that there are these challenges, but we are also saying there is a way. As families, as communities, we've been able to work together. And one of the issues they said is that we trade. Can we be helped to have markets Mm. that we can access? Mm. Markets that can facilitate our income and livelihoods. So I think these are some of the opportunities we are looking at. Mm. And and for us, we are saying if we bring this focus as a development solution and look at these areas, what is the key thing? Is it market? Is it finance? Is it value chain and value addition Mm. to the livestock products, Mm. to the crop products? then we are therefore saying then let's as much as they are appreciating that there are no physical borders but they are saying this space we are in is our space that we want to thrive yeah so we also want to support them working with governments through the african union and IGAD ensure the horizontal and vertical cohesion is something that we support these communities with yes
3: In the absence of research, one can actually not even move forward. So, uh, one cannot possibly doubt the importance of what you do. Now, but I have to ask this question. At the end of all the processes that you carry out, and with the goals you have in mind, what does success look like? When one looks at the research that has been undertaken, the time that has been taken, what would you need to look at in order to say that, you know, here we've been successful? Here, we've achieved what we set out to do.
1: Thank you. I think success um, would look like this. Mm. That um, a Bodlands mother, youth, elderly, and the general community Mm. can say, in the last two years, we were not able to grow crops we were not able to go to the market. But in 2024, in 2025, I can grow crops, I can go and trade. And I can comfortably relate with my neighbors in a more peaceful way. And they can say that their livelihood have actually improved. So the success will be what are these interventions we are bringing? They should be intervention interventions that actually speak to their needs. It is not something we are saying this is a must do. No, we look at the recommendation. what we, they said, for instance, they some of them, they do beekeeping and they were saying a little bit of injection we can be able to package and sell and therefore I can be able to earn. So success would look that these aspirations that they have, this opportunity that they are saying, they just want an injection, a small push, for them to realize and to get back on their feet. And it, because of COVID, some of these communities, when borders were closed, they could not trade. But they're saying now, with COVID going down and cross um, borders being open, if you can just inject market, finance for us, we'll be able to get back on our feet. That is the success we want to see. The success that we have supported them in what they see as the lines of livelihood to be able to thrive. Mm. That is the success we are looking at.
0: I'm hearing government response. Mm-hmm. Success here is if the government reads this report and the government responds toward the people, because the, re- the report, like you're saying, the report contains the voices of the people this is what we'd like if we got this we believe we can move right even if the UNDP and other development partners came in and started initiated the projects that need to be sustainability and that's where government comes in now I hear government response and I go back into the frustration that even city was was expressing here masabit County has Africa's largest wind power plant okay all that power is evacuated and brought to suso these people are talking about value addition electricity they are talking about if, if kenya has if not the largest the second or third largest stock of livestock it's in this arselle, uh counties now <laughs> markets getting into abattoirs getting into processing getting that meat out into surely it only just needs government response and that's why i i i I know you work at research and you're listening to the people and the people are saying and you're producing the report and you're saying all right government has also worked and they have listened and they're saying yes we agree that this would make sense the next thing is just unlocking that government response now I know that is not the area that you come in, but now at higher level at UNDP, at UN, at AU, at IGAD, it is just saying, Well, government, can you how much money would you need? Um, if it's X amount of money, we can inject the initial capital. And then you make sure that you guarantee sustainability for the community for the benefit of the community. Which is not community, it's for the benefit of your citizens. Okay, my question.
1: <laughs> the Go for it,
3: Eric. Yeah. <laughs> I
0: want to ask the question. Okay, ask. Yes. Are there, um, on this report, uh, mechanisms? Okay, what are they called? Uh, okay, are there mechanisms and implementation matrices that say this must happen by this time?
1: Thank you, um, Eric. We couldn't put everything on the report. And I think I mentioned when I started that um, the design of this report was collaborative. So what we are doing now and starting with today, we're going to have uh, an implementation plan inbuilt with the various stakeholders. And you've ably mentioned some of them, the African Union, IGAD, ECOWAS in the West, ESC, um, and all governments. We're going to work with governments and in the eight countries that are mentioned in the report that is Kenya, Uganda, um, Ethiopia, South Sudan, Nigeria, Mali, and Burkina Faso, and Nigeria, and UNDP country offices in those regions. So, in the implementation plan, we're going to put those specifics and we're going to work. One of the things is to sensitize them about the recommendations of the report so that we work together in terms of the implementation and resource mobilizing for actually implementing. So in a separate document from this, we have that implementation matrix and we've mapped out for the various stakeholders so that they can pick in a recommendation and see how they are going to, to work with that. So that is not part of this report, but it is uh, the what we call the post-launch report advocacy that we are going to work with the various stakeholders in the private sector. Mm. Yeah.
2: It's a unique community um, and looking at communities which other development agendas then operate within usually it's to uplift the situation yeah. or to change a situation or to bring about something else Here, we're not necessarily saying remove these people from this area yes. but what and maybe you could advise on this what we're saying as the end goal is to say that even as these people reside in these areas, you know, eke out livelihoods, etc., what are we saying that ought to be the minimum irreducible standard that they should then um, inhabit as they live here? Because it's a different intervention from the way I see it. We're yeah. not trying to say provide water. We're not trying to say end gender-based violence. We're not trying to say uh, uproot them. They, I mean, this is where they live. This is what they know. But what are we saying is the bare minimum in terms of a standard through which they should operate even as they live along these borders?
1: I think uh, before I respond to your question, I think um, just a bit of of correction. One of the key issues that came up is actually GBV is on the increase in these areas. Okay. Mm. Yes. Mm. And therefore we are saying if you have to provide development solutions, Mm. you have also to look at why this GBV in these areas. Mm -hmm. And and therefore, meaning that for any development solution, then you look at the most affected. Mm -hmm. And that minimum you're talking about, it all boils to all of them, whether it's women, youth, Mm -hmm. pastoralists, herders, is the issue of livelihood. Mm -hmm. And even humanly speaking for all of us, if you Mm -hmm. don't have anything for a livelihood to feed yourself, then you cannot even breathe. Yeah. Mm. So, we are therefore saying the bare minimum. Look at the options for this agro pastoralist in this region. What is it that they are doing that they need support to be able to say that they have an income that supports their daily livelihood? And as I said, one of the issues that we, we've looked into is that because they are in marginal areas, because of the drought and other related climate shocks they also cannot farm they cannot contain their livestock so one of the issue also just to go back to your other um, issue they said if water can be provided where they are Mm -hmm. then that is one of the things uh, they can do so we are saying the bare minimum is looking at the options because we did the research in eight countries cross border areas cross border locations they are unique very specific things that these communities are doing and they just need what i said an injection to be able to thrive back and to have their livelihoods so it's basically looking at what are these lively options that traditionally they'd be able to do but they can they cannot because of these climate related mm-hmm. shocks mm-hmm. and crises.
3: you know you explained what you've done so well and this report so well, I'm actually getting to think that what we're talking about here is what we call implementation science. So it's not just a question of, well, let's answer a few questions, conduct the research process, and then let's cool. see what the findings are. No, yeah, no. Yeah. You, you you're going that <clears throat> extra step of ensuring that what you find is something that can be implemented. And so that it can become part of everyday practice for those people who are there. And again, as Eric puts it, the government has to come in. What leverage does UNDP have to ensure that some of the things that they come up with actually get implemented? I'm using the word leverage because governments tend to have their own idea of what should happen and how it should happen. And sometimes it's contrary to what actually should happen. So now, as a world body and as a serious, strong agency with the power of the UN behind it. How do you ensure, in the most amicable way possible, get governments to actually implement or ensure that these things happen?
1: Uh, thank you. Um, just to go back to what you talked about, implementation science. Actually, i um, uh, for me as as a researcher uh, i applied what we call the citizen science <laughs> um, and that's why the voices and if, if you can uh, look at the report, we also have the faces because we wanted to show where are they you elevate their voice but also uh, let them be seen
0: and be heard give them centrality yes mm.
1: very important in terms of how the un work with governments in every country there is a cooperation framework mm-hmm. with the specific governments for that country. So, in this region, um, as much as the Africa Borderlands Center is continental, we are hosted in Nairobi and we have the UNDP country office in Nairobi. And we also have the resident coordinator in Kenya. And this uh, to help us with on the ground implementation, working with the government of Kenya through the cooperation framework. So there is that, and this cooperation framework, the UN comes in, not only UNDP, we have other UN agencies working with government through the cooperation framework. And this cooperation framework is guided by the government uh, priorities. And we are happy that our report will contribute to some of those um, priorities for the government of Kenya, Mm -hmm. uh, specifically looking at um, the outcomes that came with these two uh, research locations that were researched. And we are also happy that the county governments um, for these two counties are involved. So for us, we take that opportunity being guided by the cooperation framework to enhance the partnership and also to provide the technical support mm. and the technical advice. Uh, to be able to help uh, these governments uh, achieve what they want to achieve. Secondly, and very, very important for the Africa Boland Center, mm. uh, the center was actually created with the UN and the African Union. So through the African Union and the member states and under our implementation plan for the report, we are also going to work with them so that for all the member states mm. where the research was done, they will be able to work with their member state with our support and with other development partners that have shown interest uh, to be able to work uh, through this and just to mention that um, we presented the initial findings of this report um, last year in morocco during the african union policy forums Mm. and is one of those that they committed to look at the recommendation and see how they can work with their member states. So these are the other avenues mm. on how we work. And also in West Africa, uh, working with the with with the ECOWAS, they're also looking at for the four countries in that region, how they will be able to work with us and other development partners to implement, same case in the East African region and, and the IGAD. Okay. So there's that cooperation framework that guides uh, the UN in terms of working with governments and we'll be able to work with them through that.
0: Dr. Lily, thank you very much for all this information, and thank you for visiting us today. Thank you. We welcome you to come again soon.
1: Thank you very much, and uh, we look forward. This is just one of those uh, mm. that we we're trying to create awareness and and to ensure that. Um, this citizen science Mm. uh, through a (laughs) collaborative approach, uh, we can be able to ensure that development solutions actually reach these marginal areas and ensure that uh, we achieve uh, the sustainable development goals. Asante.
0: How about that? You made it to the end of today's podcast. You clearly ooze stamina. Guess what? Just hit subscribe at Standard Media Podcast, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts from. Our podcasts drop daily. From me and the team, catch you next time. Bye-bye.